I'm Emily Dilling, and this is the Perry Paysan Podcast. In this month's episode, we'll be talking with Heidi Evans, founder of the Women of Paris Tours. Then we'll introduce a new segment featuring Forrest Collins of the cocktail website 52 Martinis. Forrest will talk about seasonal cocktail menus and what she'll be sipping on this summer. And then we'll speak with Wendy Lin, veteran Paris tour guide, restaurant expert, and foodie. Wendy will tell us all about why and where she loves eating in Paris. Let's get started by heading to the 5th arrondissement, where I met up to chat with Heidi. So I'm with Heidi Evans, the founder of Women of Paris, who um, takes people on tours of the city and highlights women's contributions and marks that they've left on the city, which is a really, I think, underappreciated aspect of the history of Paris, history in general. Um, and so I'm really excited about this initiative that you've taken to do these tours. And like I was saying earlier, um, we focus a lot on personalities in the Paris food scene on this podcast, but I think while I've been doing the podcast, I've been really um, aware of the contributions that women have made to that particular scene in Paris. A lot of the interviews that I do are with women who are really active in the food and restaurant community here. And so it made me realize that a lot of these women's contributions and the roles that they've played in creating this like vibrant and beautiful city often go unrecognized. So um, maybe you could talk a little bit about like your motivation and inspiration for creating these tours and maybe talk a little bit about what they consist of to get us started. Okay, cool. So, um, yeah, I've been here for three years. Um, I'm originally from London and I started working as a tour guide um, pretty much straight away. I was giving tours of central Paris and I was really giving people an introduction to the city. But I realized after only a few months that I wasn't talking a lot about women. I was talking a lot about these great men. And there are a lot of men that dominate the the narrative of Paris. So that's why I wanted to create tours where I would have the opportunity to talk all about uh, women's history. And What struck me, as well as talking about the great men, is that we were talking about a lot of bad women, or at least the women that did feature were bad. (laughs) Um, And just to give you an example, you know, you've got Marie Antoinette, who everyone knows was really horrible, (laughs) and uh, Catherine de' Medici as well. Um, So I I wanted to give a bit of a defence of those women and then talk about other women that just don't really... Get mentioned. Did you like come to this with a background of already knowing about women's role in Paris history or did you have to kind of go back and, and seek this out and how did you choose who you would feature especially with that emphasis of not just any women but maybe women who like clearly had a positive impact instead of women who are often painted in the sort of dark light like I guess Marie Antoinette is one of the examples. Yeah so I mean it was a kind of a mixture of the two. Um, there were a lot of women that I really wanted to talk about but didn't find the opportunity to, um, one of those being Josephine Baker. And I wanted from the beginning to to include her on, on a tour, but she just didn't really fit anywhere. Um, and the thing about walking tours is that you, you have to find a route that's going to, um, you know, where you're going to find places that you can stop and talk about people appropriately. And so 
certainly on my central parasitage, there was nowhere to stop and talk about her apart from maybe, um, you know, the, the green boxes you find that sell books and posters. There's posters of her all over those. But, <laughs> but it's a little weird to just like, talk about her in front of one of them. Anyway, so she's an example of somebody that I did already have in mind to talk about. Mary Curie as well. But then there were lots of people that I discovered along the way, which was really awesome. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I was I was really struck when I started learning uh, a tour, which I which I do now at the Musée d'Orsay, um, that there were three female impressionists, and you don't really hear about them. I mean, you hear about one of them more than the others, but Morisot, but the other two are really kind of swept under the the carpet of history mm. so um that struck me and I realized wow there's so many other women out there that um you know must also be recognized who are some of the favorite women that you've encountered while you do doing the research and putting together these tours I guess I guess what's been good is just learning more about some of the famous people like Marie Antoinette like Mary Curie um and then discovering people like Sylvia Beach Mm-hmm. who um, opened the first Shakespeare and Company bookshop and who published Ulysses. I've been watching interviews with her in it and she's just the cutest. <laughs> she's so sweet. And um, yeah, people like her, you know, you really wish you'd met them. Um, that's kind of the, the feeling I have towards her. I think you can think of like a woman like Sylvia Beach. That's so um, she's so representative of a time in Paris mm-hmm. as well, and so she's representative of a movement, and she can kind of I think encapsulate like a lot that was happening in the city at a time. So, um, so I think yeah, that's the thing too is you're also evoking not just a person and their story, but like a time and a place. Um, and I think that your tours concentrate kind of on the Saint Germain de Pré mm-hmm. region. Is that is there a reason for concentrating on that area? I mean, it really goes back to what I said before about finding the right spots to talk about um, these women, and a lot of them did live in the left bank. And I wrote, I, I read a really good book when I was researching called Women of the Left Bank. Um, and so already there were women in there. I actually took that book because I wanted to learn more about um, Simone de Beauvoir and uh, a few others, but I, I learned of new women through reading that book. But actually, we, we, do, we do walk about uh, in the 5th as well, a bit as well. So it's not just the Saint-Germain-de-Pré. Um, one of the tours is just Saint-Germain-de-Pré. That's the writer's tour. And then the other tour, the essential, is, is in both the 5th and the 6th. Yeah. There's actually two different tours. So can you describe the, the, different, like the similarities and, I guess, differences between them and the themes that are attached to each one? Sure. So um, the essential tour is the first one that I created. And this was actually when I didn't know if I was going to make subsequent tours. You know, I kind of wanted to, but I wasn't sure at that stage. So this one is an overview, really, of women uh, in Paris. We talk about a woman right back in the 5th century, and we talk about women um, in the 21st century. Scientists, activists, writers, you know, it's, it's really general. And then I created the, the Sugar and Spice and Women Who Write walk, which that's the one in Saint-Germain-de-Pré, which, as the name suggests, focused on writers. And we also do tastings. Yeah, okay, so I love this. So how did you tie in tastings to the tours? Other than the title, 
<laughs> it's not like a huge link. <laughs> it's just people get hungry on the way. It's and... really, it's just because that's a really great area for eating. And I mean, uh, there every sort of fifth shop sells chocolate or macaroons or caramel. And so I decided it could be fun to have these little interludes. And, you know, people kind of come to Paris to eat. Um, so it combines that and then also learning uh, about these about these writers. This seems like a perfect fit for me. There's no <laughs> Paris stories complete without, like, some chocolate, I think. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then you also mentioned that you have a few other ideas for tours in the works. Are there things you can talk about now that we can, can look out for in the future? Yeah, definitely. So um, right now we're uh, working on launching a new tour, The Women of Montmartre. That might not be the title, but uh, we haven't exactly worked out the title yet. It, it might be something more along the lines of sex and violence in Montmartre. <laughs> um, so actually it's not me who's creating this tour. It's another woman um, who approached me, uh, a historian who wanted to do tours like this and then uh, discovered us. And so she, she came to me and asked me if, if, um, if I'd be interested in, in creating some new tours with her and with her, her research. We're going to do a test run this weekend. And then if that goes well, we'll be launching it um, over the next few weeks. And it's I'm so excited because women of Montmartre are super interesting. You have the nuns, and then you have the prostitutes, <laughs> and then you also have women who fought in the revolutions. That's amazing. So it's great that it sounds like you're very open to like having more tours. And are they do they happen on a regular basis, or should people get in touch with you to see if, if they can arrange with you to have a tour, or how does that work? Yeah, so right now it's we're still just running these tours on request. Okay. Um, you know, one day when we're getting lots of bookings, I would love to have a, a regular slot. But for now, if people are interested in taking a tour with me, just get in touch via the website. Um, I have all my details there, my email and my telephone number. Uh, and there's actually a booking form on the website and um, I will respond to you and we can find a date. Um, so it's nice and flexible. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really flexible. Yeah, it sounds like a great thing to do if you have like a lady trip planned to Paris or if you just want to do something with your lady friends. Or, I mean, I'm sure, obviously, men are invited as well. I mean, it's open totally. to everyone, but it's like it, it seems like a really great opportunity to kind of see the city through a different lens, which we don't often yeah. get to have. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really fun um, because, you know, we, uh, especially the, the sugar and spice walk, I think that, that can be really fun for a girl's trip. Um, and it's really inspiring when you hear about these women and what they've achieved with the limitations and the discrimination that they, that they had to endure. It's super inspiring and every time I do a tour, even though I've been giving loads now, I always walk away feeling really inspired and really moved. Well, I think it's important because it's a really nice way to contribute and like pay testament to to their legacy. And I think recently it's kind of come under attack the um, or we've kind of been called into question the fact that like there's hardly any streets named after women in Paris. While we're waiting for that to happen, and while we're waiting for more progress to happen and the like more recognition for women to arrive, I think it's nice to do something that you're doing, which is contributing to honoring their their legacy. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I I really hope so. Um, the idea was to tell the lesser told narrative um, and yeah I mean totally guys are very welcome on the tour I've had a lot of guys come on these tours it's quite a fun thing to do if you're bringing your partner to Paris 
the tour is equally as much for men as it is for women sure. too, right? Because it's nice to have them see how underrepresented yeah. women are. And so, also, like, why not mix it up too? I think, you know, I, I haven't done a lot of walking tours of Paris, I have to be honest, but I think, um, you know, a lot of them kind of have maybe a sort of set sort of formula for what is mm -hmm. shown in the, the historical monuments and things like that. And if someone's already kind of done one of those or maybe is a, a Francophile and has already kind of knows a little bit about Paris history, this is a cool way to have a different aspect and a different point of contact with it, I think. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of the people who have come on my tours are um, like long-time visitors of Paris. They've been here on several occasions and now they just want to dig a bit deeper um, and a lot of the time I'm talking about these people who they've never even heard of, um, which is really awesome because these are really educated and knowledgeable people. And I like the fact that they haven't heard of them because then I feel like I'm giving them some new information. I mean, I imagine as a tour guide, even like in the past three years now, you're probably walking around the city, see it differently because you're kind of maybe aware of like a historic event or something that significant that has happened in in the the street that you're just walking down casually and I think it's kind of cool to empower a tourist to kind of have that sort of have more of a maybe personal attachment to a space instead of kind of being overwhelmed by the beauty of Paris and um, passively sort of taking that on like to be able to take you know the opportunity to learn more and have a bit more of like an intimate sort of knowledge of the city is is great yeah, sure. I mean, it's great to to really intimately know a city, and um, that's one of the reasons why I really get so much so much out of living in Paris because I have studied the history and I keep on studying. You know, I'm I'm reading books all the time. I'm watching documentaries, and I'm just a nerd basically for for this for the city's history. Um, yeah, and it just makes your connection with that place so much stronger, like you said. I have a tendency to focus on what's happening now in Paris, but I think it's really interesting as well to focus on the history and how we got here and what yeah. the fabric of the city has been made out of. So um, so thank you so much for what you're doing. It's really exciting. And um, I'll put all the links up on the website, but if you want to maybe give us a little run through just for people who are listening of maybe the best places to follow along. I don't know your social media accounts that would be the best way to kind of keep up to date with what you're doing. Yeah, so I post a lot on Instagram, and uh, you can find me at just Women of Paris. Um, I'm also on Facebook. Again, it's Women of Paris Walk. And then if you want to find my uh, my website, it's um, womenofparis.fr. Great. Okay, and I would encourage anyone who's coming to Paris to not hesitate to reach out and, and plan a tour with Heidi and discover all the women of Paris. Thank you so much for meeting with me. Thank you very much. Hope to see you on a tour soon. <laughs> Check out our show notes on perrypaysand.com for more information on new and upcoming Women of Paris tours. I'm very happy to debut a new segment on this episode of the podcast. It's called Seasonal Cocktails, and it features my friend and colleague, cocktail expert Forrest Collins of 52 Martinis. Forrest will be sharing her knowledge of the Paris cocktail scene and seasonality when it comes to ingredients that go into cocktails throughout the year. In this first installment, Forrest walks us through what to look out for when it comes to warm weather cocktails. Hi there, everybody out there in Perry Paysan land. I'm really excited to be here today to talk to you a little bit about a new short series that I will be doing here on the podcast, and it's called Seasonal Cocktails. Starting in the fall, I will be doing a new episode per season where I'll talk about the available fresh ingredients as well as cocktails that work well for that time of year 
and sharing some news from local bars about what they might be doing with their menus as the seasons change. So we'll have a new episode each season starting in September, but today I just want to warm up a little bit and talk to you in general about seasonal cocktails and maybe share a few little snippets of news as we move out of the spring cocktail season. So I think it's really interesting to talk about cocktails in a seasonal context, uh, especially because here we're talking about them on Perry Paysan, and, and so much of this podcast is focused on seasonal food shopping and eating. I think that that's a really integral part of this series, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But what I also think is interesting about cocktails and seasons is that not only are they a way to incorporate fresh fruit and produce and um, flowers and herbs into your drink, they're also a really interesting way to extend that season beyond its time and to be able to enjoy flavors later on. A really good example of this is a cocktail called The Fifth Season, and Emily and I collaborated on this, and we worked also with our friend Melanie. We did it for her book, the My Paris Market Cookbook, and what it was was a way that we um, we wanted to uh, incorporate a blueberry shrub into a cocktail so we could enjoy the blueberry fit flavor after the summer into the fall. And it was a lot of fun and it worked really well and it was a nice way to enjoy the blueberries both in season and out of season. So I think that's a really interesting aspect of cocktails. And it's not just about shrubs, which we did with the blueberries, or syrups, which are very easy to do with fruit, but also alcohol is a really great medium for preserving things or for infusing things. So it's just a really great way to take on the flavor of something else. Another interesting side to cocktails and seasons is just simply the fact that people tend to serve different cocktails at different times of the year. A lot of that having to do with, with the temperature or sort of holiday seasons. But a really good example is we're going to drink hot toddies in the fall and the winter and when we want to get all cozy. And then in the summer, we might switch over to gin and tonics or mint juleps, which are a great drink for the summer. So I think uh, it's also sort of these, I don't know, these cultural adaptations of when we drink what, most of the time based on, on the temperature and sometimes the holiday seasons around it. But I think that's also really interesting. Over the past few months, as I knew that we were going to get started on this project, I kind of talked to a few bartenders in town as I saw them about what they do with their seasonal menus. And really, it's, it's very difficult for a bar to actually change their menu every season. It takes a really long time to develop a list of drinks. And by that, I mean a very good list of drinks. It's, it's easy just to throw whatever together, but, but something that, you know, everything works. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes a lot of um, testing. So not everybody really does that. One bar that does do it is our friends down at Red House. They do change their, their menu seasonally. And so, for example, right now, they've got a spring menu up. And on the spring menu, you will find things like uh, they've got a raspberry syrup. They've got a blueberry syrup. I talked to Joseph at Mabel. He's also got his summer menu up and running now. And a particular note on that is he's got a blockbuster daiquiri that looks great. It's really something that you think of that you want to drink when it's summertime. It also incorporates popcorn bitters, which I'm very curious about, so I'm going to have to get down there and try that one. And he's got another one with mango curacao, which also makes a ni nice nod to springtime fruit. I was talking to Guillaume, who works down at Dirty Dick, and asking him about their seasonal products, and he said 
it might affect them less than it does other bars because a lot of what they do with tiki drinks is they work with tropical fruits and tropical fruits are imported and generally available all year long. Of course, they do change their menu from time to time, uh, but it may have less to do with what fruits and vegetables and other produce are available uh, than just that it's time to change the menu and they're ready to do something different. When I was in the bar Monsieur Antoine, they had mentioned that they don't change their, their menu on a regular seasonal basis, but they do what they do is swap out a few drinks when they feel like they've created or discovered something that would be a really good addition to the menu and works well with the season. So basically they've got kind of a backbone of drinks that work, and then as they see fit, they swap out a few. And I think that's a nice approach too. It keeps the it keeps the menu really solid and tight and well done. Each drink works really well but it also keeps it fresh with a few new ones coming along. So I know that there's lots of other bars out there that, that change their menu, and I'm sure there's plenty more that, that might be doing some seasonal stuff for summer. So get yourself out there and go see what's going on, and uh, maybe you'll make some good discoveries. Now me, for my summertime drinking, I am thinking about doing a lot of the piscine-style drinks this summer. Now the piscine, piscine means swimming pool in French, and it's a style of drink that's served in a really large balloon wine glass. So it's this big balloon wine glass packed with ice, and it's got a lot of stuff in it, usually something sparkling. And it's been happening in Spain for, for quite a long time now. It's how they serve their gin and tonics. They feel like it's a really good way to better appreciate the aroma of the gin and of the tonic. And I, I tend to agree. I think it's a really nice way to serve a gin and tonic. But I think there's other good reasons to be serving drinks like this, especially in the summer. I feel like with all the ice, it's really nice and refreshing. And also, when I've got a fair number of people over, it's a great way I can serve up a round of these and I'm not constantly making drinks. I can actually enjoy some time with my guests because they have something large that they can sip on that's not going to heat up too fast. And um, it's not like in the winter where I might make a, a round of uh, something short and strong and by the time I finished making the the drink for the last guest who's arrived I've got to go back and start making another one for the first guest so I think it's going to be kind of a fun way to be making drinks this summer I'm thinking I'm going to be doing of course some gin and tonics I'm thinking I might be doing some martini and tonics for people who want something a little bit lighter who aren't really into gin I'm going to be doing some vodka and some elderflower soda for my friends who are a little more vodka than gin thinking about maybe playing around with some bourbon and some iced tea. Um, I'm thinking about a few different fun things like that. Maybe something with some Pernod and some cucumber and some water. I think there's a lot of possibilities, but I'm going to keep it pretty fun and simple and try not to get too precious or overly complicated because I feel like it's summer and summer is kind of about having something refreshing and good, um, but also spending time with your friends and not getting too caught up in the minutiae. But you know, just let's ha let's have some fun with it with a big drink. Now, something that I also will be doing a little bit of over the summer is spritzers. Now, I don't really think there's an English equivalent of the piscine. I would suppose people would call it a spritzer. I personally think more of the piscine is the really big wine glass, and a spritzer is a little bit of a smaller wine glass. So I'm going to be playing around with some spritzers too. I think there's there's lots of things on the horizon for me this summer in wine glasses with lots of ice and lots of bubbles and just something fun 
and refreshing. So that's what I'm thinking. Plus, I'm going to be making some mint juleps. I got some very cute retro colored metal glasses that I will be using for my juleps. So if you happen to be around my house this summer, that's what you'll be drinking. But in general, what is what does this season mean for your cocktails? Well, spring, I and mean, we're just moving out of spring, it obviously means that you're going to see more springtime fruit. You strawberries, which are kind of one of the first things to pop out. Apricots, mango, grapefruit, rhubarb, honeydew. It's all, at, it's all at its prime. And those are really nice seasonal things to bring into your drinks. Um, but also flowers and, and, and the plants are starting to bloom, which means that you've got access to very pretty floral garnishes and also sweeter, fresher herbs. So in general, uh, as you can see, I think cocktails are great for either showcasing uh, the current season or extending it. So I'm looking forward to exploring this a little bit more and checking back with you in the fall to let you know to what to expect in, you know, in your fall drinks and what will be happening on the Paris cocktail scene in terms of their menus. And until then, go put something fresh in your glass and have a great summer. You can find out more about the Paris cocktail scene and where to get a great drink by visiting Forest's site, 52martinis.com. I met up with Paris restaurant expert Wendy Lin at the Bistro Paul Bert wine bar for a chat about her favorite restaurants and why she thinks Paris is such a special city when it comes to eating. I'm with Wendy Lin right now. We're at the Cave Paul Bert in our neighborhood, the 11th. You said you've been here for 28 mm -hmm, years? Mm -hmm. Yep, 28 years. So um, why here and why so long and what do you do here? Let's just start with all of those questions. <laughs> uh, well, you can hear uh, I'm a southerner and uh, living in Paris since 28 years, but I've been in the food and wine industry for a long time, having opened restaurants and uh, launching the Michelin Guide around the world and et cetera, but I've been retired now from that for about seven years, so I still know everybody. So I feel like this is maybe like one of your locals, but what it is it? It's my favorite restaurant in the world, actually. Well, maybe you can tell us about what you love about the Paul Bear family of restaurants, and then also maybe we could start with some of your other favorite restaurants in the 11th, and then sure. maybe spread out. Okay, sure. Um, but since I got here 28 years ago, the left Bank uh, was actually the coolest neighborhood there was, and in the last seven, eight, nine years, the shift has been away from the center of Paris. It just happened to be in the 11th, where there wasn't much development going, so people got great rents, and now it's just like its own little village. So uh, someone recent, a food and wine magazine was just here with me, uh, the editor, and she said, so this is like Brooklyn and that's Paris, and I said, nope, this is Paris, and... <laughs> I don't know what that is over there. Uh, but Bertrand, uh, the Bistro Paul Bear has been here 20 years, so I've known Bertrand since uh, he opened the doors. And then his wife, Gwen, has the seafood place next door, uh, which that's number 20. Bistro Paul Bear is number 18. We're at the little wine bar, number 16. And then at the end of the street, we've got number 6, which is a little more modern uh, bistro presentation, uh, kind of Scandinavian Noma in spirit. Uh, and then the Bistro Paul Bear, obviously my favorite, but it's a uh, classic French food. Um, and there's a problem uh, getting really good, fresh sourced food when people come to Paris when they want to come to bistros. And Bertrand actually has a farm in Normandy where he's growing everything for the restaurant in terms of um, uh, the food that's coming in. His neighbors are, you know, getting pigeons. He's got strawberries that are coming up out of the ground right now. I just saw them delivering uh, mushrooms um, and truffles. Everything is just fresh, 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 amazing. And it's, and it's special because there's so many modern, young, up-and-coming chefs doing great things. There's absolutely nothing wrong with them. I'm championing them uh, quite a lot. That finding a true, authentic French bistro these days is getting harder and harder to find. So it's just the hub. It's where I uh, 
recalibrate from world travels and eating in these other places. So it's just a really special, it's a real French neighborhood. It's a real French bistro. Um, and people coming and kissing each other, shaking hands. I mean, you don't, you don't feel like you're flying all the way across the world to a Las Vegas type show restaurant. It's just, you're seeing a slice of life. And, and I love it. You're seeing it right now, watching the deliveries come and go. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And it kind of gets you in that sort of, that bistro mood of just those that, that buzzing of activity and exchange and, and locals and I think that's kind of a reason why as expats you know we were charmed by Paris to begin with and it's nice to still have that sort of slice of Parisian life that exists but it's done really well it's almost like traveling in time when bistros were functioning with using local products and using good quality food and so it's amazing to keep that tradition alive and I think their specialty is also doing like working with really great meat doing um, like a really great like standard like steak frites things like that yeah and I would just like to say for the record I'm so glad I get a chance to say this um, everyone knows that when you go to the Bistro Paul Bear you're supposed to go there for steak frites okay. steak frites do not exist it's a phrase that a friend of ours of uh, quite a famous food critic coined when you're just in the mood for grilled uh, beef obviously and french fries but you, no one will go to the butcher and ask for steak you ask for a cut of meat so um, when people go to the bistro Paul Bear they're looking for the word steak frites on the menu they don't exist then there's different cuts of steak on the menu but the one that people are talking about when they're at oh you go to bistro Paul Bear you have to have the steak frites it's actually so special it's got its own menu so they bring a chalkboard over to the table with all the other wonderful things they have but it's a separate menu and it's literally its own pepper um, it's a pepper filet, uh, filet, filet mignon, um, and uh, they roll it in uh, peppercorns and deglaze the pan with cognac butter and cream, and then you, these beautiful hand-cut, handmade french fries, double cut, double fried, dip it through the sauce. So people come and they have the steak and they think, well, the steak, and they think, oh, it was nice, but what was all the hubbub about? Mm -hmm. It's like, nope, the one you missed was on the, so anyway, so when you come to Beast Paul Bear, please make sure you ask for this special steak that's so good it's got its own menu. I mean, people fly all the way here and they go to Bistro Paul Bear and when I hear about it after the fact that, oh, we went, we didn't see the steak free, it just breaks my heart. So I don't want anyone to miss out. <laughs> okay, a great inside tip from Wendy Lynn, um, which is another reason why I think people love your tours so much. So mm -hmm. maybe we can talk a little bit about those because you were talking earlier about kind of the inspiration for those tours, why you love doing them. And I mm -hmm. think also they bring a lot to people who can, you know, come to Paris, look for an experience and maybe miss out on it if they don't, if they're not well informed enough. So what, right. are you, what are your goals in those tours and what do they consist of? The tours that I do are in two separate things. One, I have a morning tour which definitely focuses on bakeries, cheese shops, uh, wine bars, the food, the farmers markets, how French people shop, how they go about their daily lives. Uh, and I actually do get texts, I'm not making this up, I actually get text messages from people 30 minutes after the fact and said we cannot unsee what you've shown us and now that we're walking around we're just seeing it through a whole different set of eyes and it means a lot to me um, that they're informed and they feel comfortable moving about around in their their the, the rest of their trip it makes the difference the rest of their trip but then the evening tours um, are wine bar tours and they're all private as a matter of fact I don't have an umbrella I'm not trying to you know make a fortune doing this I just really love sharing the knowledge but in the evening it's really a younger um, a younger type crowd who love restaurants and food scene and um, one of the up-and-coming chefs and uh, they've already read about all the wine bars in the 11th but they want to go with me because a they know I know everyone and B I just kind of bring them in and introduce them to people and we learn about wines and they get to really be part of things so it's a totally different dem demographic so uh, that's what I do and it's just a lot of fun
who are some people working in restaurants right now that you think are really exciting and, and doing a good job of maybe sharing the story of the people that they work with? Well, Sota, Chef Sota over at Sumi Sota. He's over at uh, the Clown Bar. Uh, and he's a Japanese chef, but I don't even like to say that because that has nothing to do with his talent or what he's doing, but he literally travels the world to do uh, collaboration dinners, etc. And he is so in love with French product and French food uh, that it just blows me away. He's in, he's in, he's, he's, I think he's more in love with French product than I am, and, and he's only been here eight years, actually. Um, but the presentation is just gorgeous. Um, but he just he's doing something over there that just makes people just love to go all the time and it's super special so um, uh, and also I'm really super proud of uh, Taku uh, Sakin over at Dersu um, and when I used to work with Alan Ducasse uh, actually uh, I remember when Taku was hired in Tokyo for one of Alan's restaurants there but now he's got his own restaurant here but he is flying all over the world uh, doing dinners but he's getting that knowledge and bringing it back and it definitely influences his menu but uh, he just works hard he's super interested he's super interesting uh, he, I mean, I've never seen anyone work harder than Taku. He's like an ant. I mean, it's just extraordinary. But um, uh, yeah, I'm just super proud. They're just uh, and they're they're connecting what they're doing here in Paris with other chefs around the world. Great ambassadors because then those people want to come here and do a collaboration dinner with them here. So it's kind of like our food and wine family is just expanding and growing. They're using French products mm -hmm. always. They're in love with the product, but um, Sota is definitely. Um, more uh, modern in presentation, at Taku is too, but he has more of a worldly spin on it because when he gets inspired somewhere, like they were just all in Mexico together, they got so excited by some of the product and the ideas that they saw that he kind of came back and put a little bit more spin on the menu, but it's still French, but it's interesting. When restaurants or chefs in other countries are looking to have to kind of mm -hmm. bring a French ambassador over, mm -hmm. what kind of influences are they looking for in this sort of, I don't know if it's a new wave, but in like in the contemporary sort of style of of Paris or French cooking right now. What are people trying to import from that scene, you think? I don't think they're trying to import anything. I think they're just open-minded and want to see what's here. They just want to know what's happening. So when they leave, they have an idea of what's happening, mm -hmm. and then they become more informed. I don't think they're coming looking for anything. I don't think people are as... Um, they're not coming with the cliched ideas anymore of escargot and French onion soup and baguettes and cheese and all that. They're just literally coming here to see what's happening. Um, and when they come and they uh, are either with me or with you or with some of the chefs that I was just mentioning, uh, it's just the uh, collaborations come from it and ideas come from it. And next thing you know, it's just grown. So I think Paris has actually become quite more well known uh, for uh, the contemporary scene is, I guess, if that's what you want to call it, only because people are actually coming here. Before, they were just coming and eating a meal and leaving, and now they're meeting people, and they're having like projects and ideas are coming from this, and to me, that's exciting. They go back to New York or Copenhagen. Uh, it's like now they're all best friends, uh, and actually, there's a chef here right now who uh, looked around the other day when he was with me and he said, Wendy, he said, uh, this is the most extraordinary food city because all of these restaurant people know each other and they're like family. He said it's like a brotherhood. So this restaurant, the entire team of another restaurant is in someone else's restaurant and then you leave there and then you go to someone else's place and you have a glass of wine and then you run into this chef who just flew in from Copenhagen and you invite him to come along and it just builds and it's super exciting to me. I think they've really made Paris, um, they're great ambassadors, but what's happening? I don't even know if I'm answering your question very well, but um, I don't well, think, I think you're bringing up something really interesting about the Paris food scene, which I didn't know is that, um, which is, but it's, it's something that I've experienced more in the, in the beer scene with mm -hmm. kind of working with people there, is that, is that spirit of collaboration and that mm -hmm. total absence of um, 
uh, of like competition yeah, or jealousy or things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely. really wonderful like, to hear about yeah. that, that is seen on, on this mm -hmm. scale and, mm -hmm. and the, this size. And it's, not that, it's not that other cities um, have that. I think any industry there's that. But it touched me that he noticed it without my even mm -hmm. having to say something because I just take it for granted because I'm so spoiled actually I don't even say I'm blessed I'm spoiled just walking down the street you know everyone and everyone's so open and coming here and oh and you eat and I even said that server used to work at so-and-so's restaurant and now he's here working and everyone's good with it it's just if you want to open a restaurant concept and you uh, most people would say oh I want to you know open a wine bar like that I'm going to go check it out no you don't here you just walk in the door and say I want to do a concept like this and they'll say great if you want to come hang out for a little bit anything you need let me know uh, do you need any products do you need contacts? Uh, it's extraordinary. And when he pointed this out, I thought, wow, even he noticed it. So it really is special. He said he's been all over the world, and he's never seen such a brotherhood. I guess that was the right, it's a real sense of a spirit, mm -hmm. a brotherhood, fraternity. I think it's a sign of, um, of a deeper investment, not just in your own personal business succeeding, but in the, the scene being mm -hmm. rec recognized and other people succeeding in creating the community. The investment is more there mm -hmm. than and just making sure that you're mm -hmm. you have a business or restaurant that, mm -hmm. that works and gets recognized. Mm -hmm. So even last night I was at um, uh, I mentioned the Clown Bar, and the owner of the Clown Bar has a one Michelin star restaurant called Saturn. We were all there last night, and then when we walked in the door last night, it literally took 30 minutes to get to the table because I was kissing everyone along the way because there's every single person that was in there was a chef or a winemaker or a restaurant person, other restaurants. Uh, and chefs from Sweden that were there last night. It was just, I looked around and said, the entire restaurant is full of chef and food people. So they were just like blown away by this. And it's, uh, I just forget how spoiled I am. So what would you recommend for, if people were looking for that, that kind of place where you would walk in and feel like you're surrounded by locals or feel like, you know, um, everyone kind of knows each other's names a little bit? I just sound like a broken record. It's in the 11th. It's yep. this thing because it is truly now a village. Uh, and I don't, you know keep going on and on about the 11th, but uh, there are other wonderful restaurants in central Paris, Les Mijons, Stephen Jago, I love, uh, David Toutain, I love, uh, Greg Marchand over at Frenchie, I love, Daniel Rose over at Spring, I love, but the concentration of um, when people, like when the chefs I told you yesterday from Sweden were here, this, they, they're trying to check out all these places because they're reading about them, so it's getting a lot of publicity, these places, so when they come in the door, that's where they head, so if you're coming to visit here, probably seven out of the ten restaurants in your list are going to be in this neighborhood. It's just feel when you walk in the door, it's not just a meaning of locals. You just know that everyone knows everyone. So if you're really interested in the food industry, this is where you would come. You would actually feel feel that. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in central Paris, uh, it's not that many of them, mm -hmm. actually. But th th those restaurants are on their list, too. It's just mm -hmm. that if you... Um, and I do... Another tip, too, is if you're here to to see this village, if you want to be part of it. A lot of people feel comfortable getting hotels in the middle of Paris, but then they realize they're traveling a lot back and forth for lunch and dinner. So I always tell people, rent an apartment in this neighborhood, go see Paris during the day, as we say, you know, do your do your wonderful, get everything checked off your bucket list, but then come back here, kick off your shoes, rest up a little bit, and then you can literally walk out the front door, go anywhere you want to go, left, right, central, and this is, it's, I think it's the best way to experience it. So, But definitely another misconception is people don't think they have to reserve. They think that's only for fancy restaurants, and that's not true. These places are so on fire, it's not even funny. And some of them only have 12 chairs. 
Some of them only have 20 chairs. Bistro Paul Bear has got uh, so many people coming uh, that I think they've got, uh, they're full morning and, I mean, excuse me, for lunch and for dinner, but on Tuesday to Saturday. And people call and say, oh, it's just a casual little bistro. And then they walk in the door and there's no reservations for a while. And they can't help it. They're thrilled, but they feel like people are really disappointed that they, they came all the way here and that they're not being hospitable because they couldn't give them a reservation, but you really do need to reserve in advance. Just don't over-reserve, because a lot of people, if you don't eat like we do here, morning, noon, and night, if you're not used to that, people come and they actually over-schedule themselves. and Yeah, you don't want to overdose on <laughs> Give yourself some time to just uh, wonder, and I think um, also maybe just shop and even cook. Like you said, I think I'm a big advocate as well as mm -hmm. of, um, getting an apartment when you're here because mm -hmm. you can kind of have fun with uh, with cooking with the products mm -hmm. that you see and also kind of get into the, mm -hmm. the, the lifestyle and the mode of living here, which can be doing your shopping, mm -hmm. um, meeting people in your neighborhood, mm -hmm. things like that. So I guess in that vein, what, what are your favorite markets or, or cheese shops or kind of just like local spots around the 11th that you would recommend that people hit up if they're staying here and kind of want to do the daily life experience of uh, living in the 11th? Well, what's interesting is the 11th, because when you asked me that question, my, my mind immediately went to the Blais Sucre Bakery. Do you know Blais Sucre? Yeah. It's over here. Um, but it's one street across the street from the 11th, so officially that's in the 12th. Oh, yeah, it's the 12th, yeah. <laughs> and there's the Marche de Ligre market, the covered market that's right there, so I'm going on and on about the 11th, but the 12th is literally one street away. <laughs> it's a great area. It's borderline. Uh, I love Blais Sucre, and Fabrice Labordave, I've known him for years when he was over at the Bristol. He's a pastry chef. He's got the extraordinary little pastries that look like gems, little Fabergé eggs, but everyone loves his Madeleines, but the croissant is just insane. I mean, it's just, I'm obsessed with that croissant, and actually French people don't eat croissants like that, the way that most people think they do, but I will literally, like, dream about that croissant at night and have to go over there and grab it. Um, but even in the market, it's not about branding here, you know, saying a big name of a particular person or a shop. Um, I just love the covered market of it. There's two cheese people, there's two butchers, um, it's just being part of the, the life, and again, a huge advocate of renting an apartment because then you get to interact with people. Sometimes it's a little scary, but it's actually empowering when you can get on the other side of it. You're like, wow, I, shop, I stood in line, I shopped from a cheese shop, there's 300 cheeses sitting in front of me, and like lived through it. But um, I just I, I just love this neighborhood. It's uh, Even in the morning, you see rushing, coming and going, making the deliveries, the bakeries. That's It's just part of being the fabric of it. But I don't think it's so much a destination. I think it's just... Walking, just being here, just mm -hmm. functioning, mm -hmm. everything you have to do to live here for a week uh, would mean a lot. But there is one cheese person in all of Paris I'm absolutely loyal to, and his name is Laurent Dubois. And he's actually in the Latin Quarter in the 5th. And if you come on um, one of my uh, the morning food tour, I definitely uh, take people there. Um, and he's a cheese agent. His family's been aging, sourcing amazing cheeses and aging them for about 80 years. He's not 80. He's much younger. would be upset with me if I said that. Um, but And then he uh, ages them in three cellars downstairs and then uh, brings them upstairs. People, people just look at that store and their mouths just drop. Or they say, oh my gosh, this smell. And where do we start? Um, you know, how, how do you even choose, and et cetera. And so I walk them through the process, which is super easy once you know how to do it. But uh, what he's doing, that I've even tried to cheat on him a few times, uh, getting some cheese somewhere else, and it just doesn't have quite the flavor in it that he's got. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. Anyway. He's good at his job. That's, that's one of those moments, too, I imagine, if you're with people who, you know, are coming from far away, they're coming and having a really, like, quintessential French experience that you know is going to be something that they're not going to be able to recreate anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why um, I think it's so important, like you said, reserve restaurants. Like Take organizing your day around eating as seriously as you do organizing your trip around yeah. visiting museums, exactly. things like that. I mean, it's such an important 
cultural aspect of, of visiting mm -hmm. here. And I also think it's one of those things that like all said and done, years down the line, you'll probably remember a meal just as much as you do the Mona Lisa or mm -hmm. you know, or a neighborhood will make mm -hmm. you feel will be more reminiscent of Paris than you know, the Eiffel Tower in some ways. So, mm -hmm. um, and so, so I really love that that's like the motivating spirit of your tours. Mm -hmm. um, and I will put all the information on the site. But if you want to um, maybe tell us where we can find you online or what's the best way to kind of keep up with what you're doing and, um, and maybe see Paris through your eyes as well. Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> Follow me at Paris is my kitchen. Uh, but people say, why is Paris is my kitchen? And people say, Wendy, do you cook? No, my favorite thing to make is uh, reservations. <laughs> so Paris is literally no my shame. kitchen. There's no shame whatsoever. I know how to open a restaurant. I know how to do what they're doing. But I just know. I, I, I love restaurants. I'm in a restaurant every single day. But Paris is literally my kitchen. So you can find me on Instagram or my website is wendylynn.paris. Perfect. Okay. Thank you so much, Wendy, for Thank taking time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You can find out more about Wendy's food tours at her website, Paris is My Kitchen. You can find the link in this episode's show notes. After our interview, Wendy was kind enough to offer to record a few observations on common tourist gaffes in Paris. Stay tuned after this episode for some bonus content from Wendy on what people get wrong in Paris. That's all the time we have for this episode of the Perry Paysan podcast. I'll be taking a little time off the podcast as I welcome the newest baby Paysan, June Louise, into my life. Please enjoy our backlog of episodes and leave comments and reviews in the meantime. Thanks so much to Heidi, Forrest, and Wendy for being my guests on the podcast. And thanks as always to Ben Nero for the original theme music. Enjoy your summer and all of the seasonal delights that come with it. And if you're planning on visiting Paris, don't forget to get a copy of my Paris Market Cookbook to help you navigate the city. Look forward to bringing you more podcast episodes in the future. Until then, bon appétit in Paris and beyond. Okay, so Wendy has been kind enough to offer to give us her list of what people do wrong in Paris? Is that just what not what they do wrong, just what they get wrong. And then when they leave, they feel, when they're here, they feel like they've, uh, you know what it is? It's a lost in translation moment. So I love it when uh, my clients will ask me, Wendy, what happened? I don't even know what the, what's, what's about to come out of their mouth, but there's always a reason. It's just like, what, what went wrong here? What, what, what went wrong here? Um, and I'd have to say that one of the, uh, we've touched on it earlier, but when you come, if you're not used to eating lunch and dinner at home in restaurants, I'm a restaurant warrior, I guess, but if you're not like that, then you definitely should uh, not overschedule yourself. But it's also the hours and the days of the week, right? So um, there's a lot of legal reasons for this, but a lot of people think, oh, well, we're here on the weekend. Why is this place not open on Saturday and Sunday? But they have to have two days off a week, mm -hmm. right? Or And so they just have to choose. Unfortunately, they can't be open seven days a week. Mm -hmm. uh, but when people go to Bistro Paul Bear, especially next door, they're fly, flying up in a car because they know they close at 1.30. Uh, they see people outside having dessert and walk in and say, oh, we made it by 15 minutes, can we have a seat? And they'll say no. And then people will say, what? But you said you're open until 1.30. No, there's nobody left in the kitchen. The kitchen team left a long time ago. We're actually just finishing up just finishing up dessert. Mm -hmm. uh, what else you mentioned something about deliveries. Are there, are there days when, like, for example, like, there's a 
fish delivery, so it's going to be... I mean, do deliveries have an effect on the, the way that the menu is decided? Ah, that's another thing. Thank you. Made me think of that. Another thing that people don't realize is that they'll say, oh, uh, they're out, we got there and they're out of the fish, and you can see the chalkboard that the server or someone has uh, taken their finger and wiped out a line item. And, um, and they say, oh, my gosh, they ran out of fish. And I was like, yeah, but that's how I know it's fresh. They didn't go to the freezer and pull out an extra piece for you. I mean, it's... Uh, super fresh and the menus change every day so unfortunately there's some things that you know I put on Instagram that the chef's upset with me about because then people come in asking for it but he changes the menu every single day so that's that's super special yeah and, and daily specials as well right those can probably be something that is like based on what's what's fresh and what mm-hmm. just came in or what needs to be used mm-hmm. and so maybe it's a creative twist on what's left in the kitchen yeah, and, things that's like an, that. and that's another thing too is that people I hear, overhear people saying oh well we just want an omelette well the omelette's not on the menu and they said, yeah, but it's just three eggs. Just whip something up. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking around thinking, yeah, but there's 80 people in here for lunch. So that's three eggs times 80 people. That's 240 eggs mm-hmm. that the chef did not definitely call in. So they actually call in their order every single day. There's, look at the, I mean, look, there's no refrigerator space. There's nothing. It's tiny. Uh, there's no storage. So they literally, what they order and what's on the menu is what is there. That's it. And when they run out, you're in a good place. And just thought of another thing. I know brains freak everyone out, but French people grew up eating brains, right? Once you have soda's brains over at the clown bar, you, you never go back. Um, but it doesn't, I think people don't go to a restaurant because brains are on the menu mm. when you don't have to eat the brains. But I'm telling you, you can't just put brains on a menu. You have to know where you're sourcing it. It's got to be top, super quality, uh, just impeccably sourced. Mm. So you know you don't have to eat brains when you go there, but don't think, don't wrinkle your nose and not go to the restaurant because if they're serving brains, you are in a good place. I mean, everything is fresh and amazing. Yeah, Yeah, and actually, yeah, that that brings up a good point. I mean, you should maybe not look for the familiar on a menu because knowing that, first of all, it just gives you an opportunity Mm. to try something new. And honestly, aside from the steak at Bistro Paul Bear, I have not had chicken, fish, or beef in couple of years so my parents are like well what are you eating I mean I don't know I'm eating all the bits I'm having <laughs> lamb I'm having uh, octopus I'm looking up there right now uh, anchovies sardines mm-hmm. uh, brains uh, kidneys yeah I mean there um, is that that like use the whole animal aspect of cooking yeah. here that's really um, great and another thing I guess I would maybe bring up about cooking meat is I noticed on the menu um, next door they were they, it says that we either serve the the meat bloody, blue, or or poorly cooked, right? So what right. would you say to people who are, you know, a little well, bit... We had this conversation last night at Saturn because the chefs that I were with um, just said, you know, look, if you come to this, you know, if, and if you don't know this, if you're listening, French people only like the red meat, like basically still mooing, slightly grilled, <laughs> medium is overdone, or as Berton says at Bistro Paul Bear, we killed the animal once, why do you want us to kill it twice? Please don't make Fair us enough. burn this meat. Uh, but the guys at Saturn last night, they were visiting from the state, said, yeah, but if I come into the restaurant, I should be able to get it cooked the way I want. And I was like, no, you can't. Because you're not the boss ne- here. <laughs> I would never come to your restaurant and change what you're doing. So my little tip there is, if you have to, if you have to have it badly cooked <laughs> if you need us to kill the animal twice please just order something else there's plenty of other things just don't put yourself in that scenario because the conversation got heated last yeah. night and I just thought this is this is uh, this is silly we're talking we're just talking about how it needs to be cooked but I, I refuse but I've been here too long now so anyway it was quite funny um, I, I respect for that I remember being at a coffee shop with my parents and they'd just gotten off a plane and they were jet lagged and they just wanted coffee and food and the server wouldn't give us the coffee with the food because it's like you can't do that and, you know 
And I get it, though. I get it. Right. Like you, I mean, if you put intention into what you're making and serving, mm -hmm. you want it to be appreciated in the way that it was meant mm -hmm. to be appreciated, right? And there's just one one other thing too. You just reminded me of that with my father, and he might not be happy if I told this story. But um, does he listen to podcasts? Well. Hey, Daddy, he's going to be listening to this one. Uh, but no, the uh, another thing uh, is people don't realize um, when you come to France, there's set meal hours because legally there's only certain hours the workers can be in the restaurant. So if you come from another culture where you can just eat when you want and you're on vacation, you're like, oh, well, we'll do the museum through lunch and we'll grab something to eat in the afternoon. That does not work here. Um, but so uh, French people never miss a meal. Breakfast lunch and dinner so my daddy's a big guy he looks like John Goodman actually uh, but you know he just wants to he doesn't want a big fussy lunch but like in the afternoon he wants to stop somewhere and get a plate of cheese and some wine well people are looking at him not because he's just a big guy because they assume he's already had lunch but now he's eating in the afternoon and he can't stop himself from eating it's like why didn't you why didn't you have your lunch mm -hmm. And you can't eat between yeah. meals here. Yeah. I mean, sure you can, but that's not what French no, people but it's, do. No one's going to make, it's not going to be easy to. Have you ever Googled the word um, uh, snacking, grinotage, or grinote? Not the, what do you call it, when you hit the top where it says uh, news, videos, etc. If you just click the word grinote uh, and you click images, it is absolutely hysterical, the images that come up, because grinote means snacking to French people. And it's got supermodels, like, smearing themselves with a clair in the middle of the afternoon, you know, with their finger up in front of their mouth saying, shh, I'm snacking. The shame that is associated with eating between meals here is, like, something most people don't don't realize so obviously if you're walking down the street with a crepe or something you're a tourist whatever nobody cares but you're never going to see a French person do that so people just skip lunch and then say Wendy there's nothing open for lunch I was like yeah there were plenty of places open for lunch but you missed yeah. your you missed your meal they were just open during lunch time right common lost in translation uh, yeah. thing yeah and again that's another reason why I think reserve and plan your day around meals because if you mm -hmm. miss yeah if you miss that lunch time then you're mm -hmm. going to miss lunch right mm -hmm. I actually remember seeing a, a cup a young couple with other young couples on a Sunday and all their kids were playing in the sandbox basically like toddlers and they were like okay it's time to come to the table out of the table it's time to have lunch stop playing and come and one little uh, child was like no I want to keep playing la, la, la. and they were like okay and everyone was like okay I guess today's the day they learned the lesson so a little kid came over afterwards when everyone's finished with dessert and said okay I'm ready to eat now and they were like nope you have to wait till dinner tonight and it's like this what do you call it a transition in life for some yeah, of these like kids. a rite of passage oh, no. yeah rite of passage like that's one guess what they never do again the next time someone says that they are at the table <laughs> I wonder you if there's like children's literature like <laughs> books about that like Juliette a manqué son déjeuner like the story <laughs> exactly exactly but anyway it's fascinating mm -hmm. but um, and the whole and, and again I don't like to it's, it is true that I don't want to um, say it's what people get wrong I don't want anyone to feel like they're not an intelligent adult and they can't come here and just enjoy what they're doing and I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable I think that's the whole reason why I want people to know what people get wrong so they don't take it personally it's not their nationality it's not anything it's just that they're not French. This is the way that the French do it. So there's always lost in translation moments. And I love my fellow compatriots here. And I love my, my French friends. But sometimes it's maddening. Mm -hmm. You just learn to deal with it. So mm -hmm. uh, as you know, in the markets, they say don't touch. But I'm like, it's not just that it's rude. The reason why you don't touch is that uh, you didn't pay for it yet. It's not your property. Why would you touch something that doesn't belong to you? And when you think about it that way, you think, oh, that is kind of rude. Mm. But anyway, but there's all kinds of lost in translation yeah. moments. But yeah. I don't want people, I love this place so much, I don't want people to have a bad experience. I guess that's what it comes down to. So to get them in the know as quickly as possible, in a fun way, not in a 
you know, slap the back of your hand. In a conflictual way. Not at all. It's just literally, I laugh at myself and listen to this voice. I mean, how this accent has survived in Paris for 28 years, I have no idea. But I got with the program, and, you know, most people are so worried about learning the language. Everyone speaks English, and look, I know you want to come here and practice your French, and fantastic, but they don't have time for everyone's French lessons. It's just, if you actually spend more time learning the culture, it means so much to them that you know who's singing on the radio, or that you know to be on time yeah, for yeah. lunch or dinner or whatever they're doing. There's a lot of ways you can non-verbally communicate your, your respect well and interest, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, well by, by not touching or by, yeah, yeah, just by being observant or waiting and being patient for the, mm-hmm. you know, for the bill at the restaurant and or not things like that. your meat badly cooked. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say it one last time. <laughs> kill the animal once, please don't make us kill it twice. <laughs> anyway. Love it. Okay. Um, well, thanks for that bonus little <laughs> set of tips. And then, and again, I'll put everything up on on the website so that people can come in and hopefully when on a trip come meet you in real life Be and, great. yeah and if you see me on the sidewalk please stop and say hi I love it when people yeah. do that it's a lot of fun to see people okay thank you so much Thanks.